Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. This week we're going to do something slightly unusual. We're hoping to introduce our audience to an important thinker that you may not have heard of, but who has an extremely interesting biography. His name is Dietrich von Hildebrand. He was a leading philosopher, Catholic theologian. And what makes him in some ways most distinctive and most interesting is he was a very early opponent of Adolf Hitler and the rise of Nazism. And we're very grateful to have on as our guest today, John Henry Crosby. John Henry's bio describes him as a translator, a writer, a musician, and a cultural entrepreneur. And he's the founder of the Hildebrand Project, which is designed to foster deep cultural renewal through publications, events, fellowships, and online resources that draw on the continuing vitality of this man, Dietrich Von Hildebrand. So it's great to have you on the program, John Henry. Oh, Carl, I'm delighted to be on. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Now, I'm guessing that most of our audience will not know anything about Dietrich von Hildebrand. So I wonder if you could give us the the 30-second Wikipedia version of, of who he is and why he's significant. Yes, well, that that's a challenge because he was a German philosopher. Oh. But, <laughs> but by the same token, let me try. So let me do it like this. I'll say to you that Dietrich von Hildebrand was a great lay Christian, well, I'll back up and say he was a Christian convert who found his way to Christianity through the beauty of the saints. And as a philosopher, he then explored his faith and then devoted his life to unpacking both Christian thought and culture in his writings. He was, of course, a a significant figure in the Catholic world because he was one of the first lay Catholics, not an ordained person, to delve deeply into Christian theological and spiritual matters. This is a newer phenomenon in the Catholic world and did this beautifully in books like Transformation in Christ, which are greatly loved. And then he was also a, a great Christian witness. He was perhaps the first Catholic figure and certainly perhaps even the first major German figure of stature to oppose Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. Is it true, uh, my memory serves me correctly, I think, that he was actually sentenced to death by the Nazis even before they'd taken power? Well, that's right. So it's it's interesting, you know, he, already in 1921, uh, when there was barely a Nazi party, it had just been founded, I think, even in late 1919, Dietrich von Hildebrand begins taking public making public objections to sort of movements in the culture. So he speaks openly against German nationalism and against German militarism and against anti-Semitism. And it's quite fitting that as a philosopher, he would not become an enemy of the Nazis, not be condemned to death because he opposed their party, but because he opposed their first principles. Mm -hmm. So uh, he goes to a conference actually in Paris, 1921, and speaks against German nationalism. He arrives back in Munich and he's described as a public traitor for his statements against German nationalism. It was so associated with being patriotic that one simply couldn't do it. And so he gets back and and discovers that he's now, you know, a kind of public enemy, an early public enemy of the Nazis. And so they, yes, they what they did is they blacklisted him at the time, meaning that had they come to power, they would have attempted to assassinate him, which then 
forced him to flee in 1923 when Hitler had a brief when he attempted to seize power and it failed. All of his opponents had to flee and Hildebrand was among them. But then later on, and we'll get to that in, in our conversation, von Hildebrand was indeed even condemned to death in absentia oh, wow. Wow. by the Nazis. Mm. That's remarkable. Remarkable. Yeah, so it, it was interesting to me as, as, I, as I read the book that you translated, uh, My Battle Against Hitler. I wonder if you could just kind of tell our audience a little bit about what was it about the nationalism that he saw that alerted him to the depth of the problem because he was one of the he was one of the first people to begin to raise flags of warning about nazism and and what did he identify so early that perhaps others weren't identifying yeah, that's a very good question, and it gets again to the heart of this sort of unusual status of a, of a great political enemy of the Nazis, namely that he was a philosopher and a Christian and a lay theologian of sorts. And this was the fact that he saw, I think one could say he had a kind of essential vision of what Nazism was. So whereas other Christians and Catholics, included uh, many Catholics, were still trying to make sense of the possible unity that could be some kind of rapprochement that could be established between Nazism and Christianity. But Hildebrand recognized that it was essentially incompatible, that no amount of softening the edges of National Socialism could ever make it compatible. And that had to do with things, for example, on the nationalism point, since you ask about it. I mean, in that nationalism, he detected you know, sort of things that were fundamentally opposed to any notion of community, even short of Christian community. It's just the kind of national community of a nation and a state, the, the hostility, the antipathy towards towards other cultures. So, for example, the traditional German hatred of the French, which was so accentuated at the time. This was deeply at odds with what von Hildebrand thought. He thought that patriotism, which he contrasts with nationalism, required one to actually to both love one's own nation, but love it in such a way that one could also love other nations and recognize the way in which different nations and their different national geniuses can complete each other. So that's that was nationalism. On anti-Semitism, it was just the fact that he thought that no matter how because, again, remember, the issue wasn't even the anti-Semitism of the Nazis initially, uh, the gas chambers and the concentration camps. It was the polite anti-Semitism that allowed people to basically say in public that Jews are a bad thing, you know, in culture and to speak in, in hostile tones. And von Hildebrand thought that no amount of sort of reducing this just to personal dislike would take away the fact that there was something deep, there was a deep hatred, there was a deep, well, he, he called anti-Semitism, even in this milder form, fundamentally anti-personalistic. And so whenever it surfaced, wherever he saw it, he said, this is not just a, you know, a kind of a problem, a, mi a minor problem of discrimination, this is an essential problem, this is an essential anti-humanism and anti-personalism. So his ability to see the depth of these problems and to not see them in a kind of superficial way as fleeting political and cultural phenomena, but to see that these identify what Nazism is and therefore make it impossible. There was just, there was no, there was simply no way of developing any kind of vision, political or religious, in which Nazism and Christianity could be together. And yeah. he saw it because he saw so deeply. Yeah, there could not be a Christianized Nazism. That's right. That's yeah. right. And he ran into that all the time. I mean, there was a the, the book is full of these kind of searing examples. There was one occasion where he was at a conference in some Franciscan friaries proclaiming the, the Third Reich as the the manifestation of the kingdom of God in the world today. I mean, just the things that to us are so insane. But there were these these desperate attempts going on among leading figures in the church. And von Hildebrand felt felt he had a duty as a Catholic and as a philosopher to well, and and I should say for our audience now, he would have felt he would have said as a Christian and right. not just as a Catholic. Right. Uh, he had an obligation right. to speak publicly against this. An interesting thing that I discovered when I was um, rummaging through your Hildebrand Project website 
was um, just the story of how we know so much about Von Hildebrand. So I was wondering if you could share that with us. Yes, that's right. I mean, this is a case. Actually, there's a certain strange irony in all of this, because, you know, for as much as we know, it could almost have all been lost. Right. The whole story of Von Hildebrand's fight against National Socialism. So he was married already as a young man in 1914. Or married before that, but maybe 19, I'm forgetting now, 1912, I think he married his first wife of over 40 years, and she passed away. And so she lived with him through all of this, but they're, you know, at the end of her life, you know, they, it was a shared experience. Mm-hmm. So then he remarries a few years later, and he marries a woman who's still alive, Alice von Hildebrand, his, his now widow, and she was much younger than he was. And so she said to him one day, I've missed so much of your life. You know, I, as your beloved, I, I grieve that, even though, of course, you know, she knew that was a, a different chapter. And so he said to her, I'll write it down for you. And in, I like to say, in typical German fashion, he produced 5,000 pages. You know, only a German scholar would write so much. But I like to say also that she demonstrates her, she's Belgian, but sort of her deep Francophone roots, mm-hmm. uh, her French roots, in the fact that she describes this long document as the longest love letter ever written. Mm. So only a yeah. Frenchman or a French lady (laughs) would turn a 5,000-page document into a love letter. But I have to say it, in fact, is, because even though the memoir, which was written, by the way, over a very long period of time, begun in the late 50s and left incomplete upon his death in in 1977, even though, you know, as the word got out and his students started to say, maybe you would publish this someday, it began as a kind of personal testament to his wife. And Mm -hmm. I think you feel that throughout it. There's a kind of honesty in it, a confessional quality that I find very moving. You know, there are these Mm -hmm. moments where he's just told you something where you're kind of still, you're you're just amazed and awed by the greatness of what he's just done. And then he turns around and accuses himself of a kind of minor flaw. And you think only a man (laughs) who feels that he can speak openly and share his life, including his flaws with his wife, could even do that. This is the Uh total opposite, you know, of a presidential memoir, you know, where you're building your legacy. So Uh I think the beauty of of the memoir is that it was never quite intended for publication, even though that became a prospect. So it was really only in in more recent years that Alice von Hildebrand, his widow, began to get more comfortable with the idea that it could be released now. Uh, Mm -hmm. So a portion of it was released about 20 years ago in German, and then our edition released even more of it. And and so here we have it. Uh, But again, it's amazing that had she not prompted it in him, it's quite possible this whole story would have would have just gone by the wayside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the first half of the book, which contains the memoir is fascinating. But I almost want to say, John Henry, that the second half that contains some of his journalism and essays on Nazism is even more interesting. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you you selected those pieces for the collection and what you hope to achieve by that. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me just back up and say just this much, So, because I think it's important to understand what these essays were or why they were written. So, von Hildebrand, by 1933, when Hitler is coming to power, von Hildebrand is now established as a significant figure in the Catholic academic world in Germany. He's living in Munich, which of course is also very much the base of the Nazi movement, which is also why he saw so much of it firsthand. And he realized he had arrived at a kind of crossroads moment. He had to decide either to silence himself in his public statements so that he could even, to have any conceivable future in Germany, he had to be quiet. Or if he wanted to raise his voice, he had to leave. Mm -hmm. And so there's this great moment in the memoirs where he arrives at a, um, it's an intellectual and spiritual and moment of conscience. And he finally concludes, I can't stay as a Catholic 
and as a philosopher, because I have an obligation in both of these different roles to speak truth publicly. I can't do it privately. Other people may have that calling to resist internally and so on. One thinks of Bonhoeffer and many other great uh, resistors, but he felt he had to speak. So he goes ultimately to Vienna, where the Austrian chancellor agrees to finance an anti-Nazi, anti-communist newspaper, a weekly journal of sorts. And it became the premier journal of the intellectual resistance, at least in the German-speaking world, during the years leading up to Hitler's invasion of Austria. So for four years, von Hildebrand is sounding the alarm from the Viennese capital and uh, produced nearly 70 essays or just over. And in these essays, you get two types, if I can put it that way. Number one, you have essays that are written to fellow Christians and fellow Catholics. They have, they're geared at issues, for example, of, well, helping them to understand the incompatibility of Nazism and Christianity, helping them to understand what it means to live a Christian life when you're leaving, living essentially under an evil regime. Then you have a series of maybe a smaller selection of essays that you might say are written to all men and women of goodwill. So these are written to people regardless of faith. And they make, let's say, more first principle type arguments against Nazism and communism. I think both of them are extremely significant because they, you know, I mean, they reflected that even at a time when when the culture was still fundamentally more Christian than it, say, is today, Van Hildebrand felt already the need to speak in these two different ways. So you might say as a philosopher and as a Christian. So we selected the essays that ultimately we thought gave readers a full sense of the scope of Van Hildebrand's call to arms in these essays. So we have a mix of essays that are addressed very much to Christians and then those that are addressed to that wider audience that I, I spoke of. And, you know, our hope today is that they can not only be read as a significant document from this incredible period, you know, uh, it's just such an incredible period mm-hmm. from the point of view of Christian witness and Christian inspiration for those of us today. And then, of course, we also want to provide them as a kind of field manual for moral witness and mm-hmm. for navigating the world that we live in today, because this shocking thing about it is that we may not have, we certainly don't have a, a Third Reich, whatever our, our problems are today, right. but a lot of the, the fundamental issues, you know, the, the compromise on truth, the tendency to engage in wishful thinking, all of these problems that Van Hildebrand was fighting, you know, or trying to awaken in his fellow Christians, they're with us today. Right. And so these essays can, in fact, be very, very relevant and useful and instructive for Christians today. Yeah, it was interesting because as I was reading through the book um, months ago and and even as as you've been speaking i i'm just reminded again of the danger of the church becoming a culture's chaplain or a political party's chaplain and mm-hmm. and within protestantism that's part of the danger is what was interesting about this most recent election cycle is i think a lot of my fellow conservatives we found ourselves concerned about some of the other uh some of our other fellow conservatives as as they seemed to offer themselves all too quickly mm-hmm. as kind of a religious rubber stamp for a particular candidate or a particular party and while we don't have the third reich it was nevertheless disconcerting to see the church so willingly mm-hmm. uh, become very very identified less with christ and and with his kingdom than it was uh, to to be identified with a party of politicians. Yeah. Oh, Van Hildebrand would certainly have agreed. So he, he, he takes, you know, uh, you might say it's a paradoxical position or maybe a kind of both and position regarding the relationship between the church and political parties. I mean, so on the one hand, he thinks that obviously there's a kind of fundamental depoliticization that is always essential 
to avoid a church getting sort of sucked into the, you know, like the internal logic of politics and, and political parties and kingmaking and everything that happens there. On the other hand, he thinks that particularly Christians in society have obligations that arise as citizens, but also obligations that arise as Christians to bear witness to, you know, he says in one place, I can't remember the exact quote, he says, it's bearing witness to the kingdom of God also in the larger moral and natural context. So he wants to say there are things that are ultimately will speak primarily to our fellow believers, but when we go and bear witness to the kingdom of God, we also bear witness to the natural moral law. We bear witness to fundamental truths about the human person. We bear witness to the the significance of truth and the and the requirements and demands of conscience, which we as Christians don't believe are only obtained to us. We believe that they obtain to all human beings. So he felt very strongly that there was a kind of calling to all Christians. He did think also, though, that, and this, this is actually very much in line with what you're saying, regarding the church as such, he felt that in later years he recognized it was a lot more complicated, when, like in terms of the perspective of history. But at the time, he felt that the church abandoned its prophetic mission. He thought that that particularly bishops, but also clergy, needed to speak much more openly. And, and he felt that to, to people who said, well, the church would have been exposed to risk had they spoken this way to Hitler. He said, well, but maybe you should have started speaking that way before Hitler was in right. power. Right. You know, so it, maybe it would have changed things. Maybe it would, have, it would have stopped the swell of public support had the bishop spoken fiercely and uncompromisingly, and as I say, in a prophetic sort of mm-hmm. way. So the, the, I don't want to say that von Hildebrand's vision is, com- is, is complicated. It's certainly, you know, it's... Um, it's modulated. It has multiple layers. But at the end of the day, for all of the separation between politics and faith, he felt that A, Christians had a significant role in the public space, so he wasn't calling for withdrawal. And B, he felt that the churches, particularly in their leaderships, had really significant obligations that they very much failed at in the 1930s. Yeah, I'm. Yeah. Von Hildebrand just immensely impresses me. I, I remember reading somewhere Karl Barth saying that he hadn't taken Hitler seriously early enough, and also commenting on the fact that he he didn't get the significance of the Jewish question early Mm -hmm. enough on. And von Hildebrand, all I know about him is the books that John Henry has published, so I'm absolutely no expert, but he just nails this stuff so clearly and so early. It's quite Mm -hmm. remarkable, and that's a remarkable gift Mm -hmm. when somebody is able to spot the signs of the times and not get carried along by them. So that's right. I want to ask you, John Henry, most of our, as I said at the start, most of our audience will be Protestant, Evangelical, Reformed. Um, why Why should our constituency read Dietrich von Hildebrand? I mean, it's an inspiring story, obviously. Everybody loves an inspiring story, but what in terms of his his thought would be valuable for, for a Protestant to, to grab hold of and reflect upon. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I do believe that the, the reasons are far beyond what we can even begin to, to touch upon here in this conversation. But, I mean, let me, let me just offer a couple of observations. So, first of all, I think that von Hildebrand was someone who, I think a great expression that I associate with von Hildebrand is one who drew the consequences. So when you read his work and you encounter his spirit, you have someone who you sense has totally drawn the consequences of his Christian conversion and what that means for every aspect of his life. And he does it in a joyful way. You never have the sense that this is someone who feels sort of burdened by obligation. This is someone who has discovered, you know, his bride in Christ the church. And I think that for Christians today, as we try to sort out our place in the culture and maybe the relevance that our 
presence and our and our example may have, you know, there's always the temptation of a kind of cultural assimilation. And sometimes it happens without our even knowing it. Mm-hmm. And I think von Hildebrand is a wonderful example of how one can be both in it but not of it uh, regarding the culture uh, and re- because because he was after all a man of great worldly accomplishment. He was highly regarded in his culture. He came from one of the most distinguished German families. You know, he never he never he never went into a kind of state of so it was a personal distress over um, his place in the world. He, he was very active there, and he loved the world. He loved the things of the world. He loved human culture and human society. So I think that we have a great model for those of us who are looking for how we can bear our own Christian witness today, one of both deep participation and love of sort of all authentic human things, and at the same time, one for whom Christ and his church comes above everything else and demands his life. And I think that's why in the anti-Nazi witness also you sense a great serenity because he, uh, you know, he knew he'd been called to give everything possibly. But I think he felt that whatever would be taken from him in terms of worldly things, by the way, including his life, it really didn't amount to anything because he already had everything. He had his faith and he had the almost tangible sense of being sustained by by God and by divine providence. So I, that's a very long answer, but I just want to sort of drive home the way in which he just models a kind of mode of Christian existence that I think addresses many of the great sort of historical and even ongoing debates about what are Christians supposed to do in the modern world. Well, here we have a great example of someone who did it, I think, so well. When just reading about um, the kind of fortitude that he had and, and, you know, what this fight cost him, you admire that. But then later when I was reading about his childhood, you know, it was interesting to see that um, something that really stuck out was his independent thinking um, in his childhood, even from his parents at such a young age, and then how that carried out as an adult then to have that kind of independent thinking, even against the philosophies of his culture at the time when it when it cost him so much. And it really made me just think of the sovereignty of God then and preparing him for what he was about to do at such a young age. That's absolutely it's, it's it's very hard to give an account of what exactly happened in his youth without feeling that there must have been some kind of divine presence or special grace, because, you know, it wasn't maybe quite clear enough that, you know, he grew up in a family that was not religious at all. Mm -hmm. His parents were, let's call them noble pagans, in the sense that they really embodied a kind of high, the best fruits of Western culture. His father was a great and renowned artist. He had five sisters. And what's very interesting is that whatever that family did in terms of the upbringing they gave their children, both von Hildebrandt and his five sisters all converted to Christianity on their own. So there was something in that environment, however Mm -hmm. unreligious it was, that at least nurtured the right things. I think among the things it nurtured was reverence. For example, a great reverence for sexuality, Mm -hmm. for nature. There was even without believing that God was the person, you know, the creator of the universe, the sense that, I mean, it was a kind of pantheism that the family had. There were a lot of the right cues. And at the same time, Van Hildebrand had a great natural religiosity that, that then flourished in him. So it's a, it's both mysterious and probably not something we can exactly imitate, say, in our own families. But at the same time, there's a lot to be learned from it. Um, and yeah, so I th- and the independence, I think, was both that was in part a, a personal trait of his. On the mm-hmm. other hand, it was somehow nourished by his parents. You know, they had a strong yeah. sense of that one didn't want to interfere with the with the child's unfolding soul. You know, he describes how his parents would sort of look in with a kind of maybe not always understanding what was happening, but they wouldn't interfere. Yeah, I think in one line you even said how his mother got choked up at one That's point. That's right. That's right. He had bowed before a, a statue of the head of Christ in a, in a very early sense of the divinity of Christ as at the age of five or six. And his mother comes in the door and 
she pauses and he must have seen her because he says that he saw a tear, tears coming down her cheek. And then she simply stepped out quietly and closed the door. And that was, I think, emblematic of the kind of respect and reverence they had for, you know, the innocence and just the, the mystery of what unfolds in a child's soul. It just also made me think of how amazingly detailed he was in his memoirs. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. He had, this is kind of, this, this tells you something, uh, beyond even, but this is beyond imitation, but I love this story. Alice tells the story that when she and her husband, you know, in later years, had difficult time going to sleep, they would try to, they would have these contests, you know, regarding history. And one of them was who could name all the French kings all the way back, you know, throughout French history. Wow. And apparently he could do it. Wow. <laughs> so he had a phenomenal memory, which by the way, you know, when we're just looking for other things to imitate, maybe not as essential, it just shows you how significant <laughs> it is to cultivate memory in our young people, because it just means that you're able to have these riches at hand right. that then allow us to flourish, you know, whether it's our learning or our faith. He had it in, in spades, this ability to just live steeped in, in um, his Christian upbringing. Of course, all the French kings are called Louis, so it's relatively <laughs> easy to remember the first, the second, the third. That's so. right, that's right, yeah. Although I will say that every time I, I submit a draft to Alice, even now, and, there, you know, there's like a, a minutiae that's off, she catches it. So, you know, ah. whatever Louis uh, and the dates, and I, I think I, there might have been dates and royal consorts included. I mean, it was in any case, it was like an We'll trust you, we'll trust you. <laughs> yeah. I have to say, when I went to, you invited me to New York to the, the sort of the celebration of the launch of the book. Uh, the high point of the evening for me was when, almost out of a hat, you produced Alice von Hildebrand. What a lovely, what a lovely lady, and what a what a great privilege it was to actually be there and see yeah. her see her in person. It was a, it was a, one of my lasting happy memories of the last few years. It was a real thrill. Yeah, she has a, a portion of his spirit, and uh, I will tell you, it was very hard to hide her presence because, of course, everyone knows who she is. So I had to kind of bring her in on the side and tell her not to walk around so that we could. Uh, you know, deliver this effect. <laughs> well, it was very successful. Mm. Well, yeah. our, our guest has been John Henry Crosby, and it's a conversation that could go on and on because of the just the fascinating and continuing relevance of this subject matter. I do commend the book that John Henry Crosby translated and edited from Dietrich von Hildebrand, My Battle Against Hitler, Faith, Truth, and Defiance in the Shadow of the Third Reich. It is a fascinating read. It is a rich read. And I can tell my fellow Presbyterians, my fellow Protestants, my fellow Reformed people that it's a wonderful read, not only just simply because it's good history and it's informative in that way, but also, as our guest has said, I, I wrote this statement down, he drew the consequences of his Christian conversion, which is something that uh, I think all of my fellow Protestants can latch on to and to keep in mind that our faith has public consequences. Our Christianity has public consequences. And certainly the thought of Dietrich von Hildebrand, not only his thought, but his life is something that we can gain some good and lasting insight from. I do want to direct your attention to a website that you might want to check out, hildebrandproject.org, hildebrandproject.org. Org, and you can see more and read more about this man and about this book. Also, we do have some copies of this book to give away. If you will come to our website, mortificationofspin.org, you can enter to win a copy of this book. It's from Image Publishers, and we would be uh, thrilled to give you a copy of this terrific 
book. Well, John Henry Crosby, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm so happy to have been here. I also feel like we just scratched the surface. Yeah. So I look forward to future conversations and also meeting you all in person sometime. Great. great outstanding. Yes. Outstanding. Well, thank you for joining us today on Mortification of Spin, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Then came the day at the bottom of the mine when a timber cracked and men started crying. Manners were praying and hearts beat fast and everybody thought that they'd breathe their last, except John. Through the dust and the smoke of this man-made hell walked a giant of a man that the miners knew well, grabbed a sagging timber and gave out with a groan and like a giant oak tree just stood there alone, Big John. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about What do I do with someone who refuses to acknowledge that they've done something wrong? How do I forgive or am I supposed to forgive someone who has offended me but they've refused to repent? What you see there is a posture of grace that has to be there before we're actually asked to forgive by someone else. That was a momentary kind of mess up. I'm not damaged. Love can cover over this. This person isn't even aware that, that they offended me. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Yeah, and, right. and and it's I always say this to people when I when I have a chance when I picked up the book oh gosh I picked up your book at least I guess six months ago mm-hmm. and um you know I tell you it's got pictures in it and every <laughs> I'm telling you this is a big thing every biography and or history book needs to have pictures I don't yeah. understand why some people don't understand that Dietrich von Hildebrand the the graphic novel is that uh, you what know, you want I, to I like to see what, needs to do that I like to see what these people look like I like that yeah. should be yeah. that should be in the yeah. show you should I, say that I'm telling you